Good morning, everyone. Um, now, about um, three weeks ago, we had a memorable Polish night here in church. And if you weren't there, then let me just try and give you a tiny flavour of, of what went on. We're going to watch a clip of a team race we had celebrating the Polish love of ski jumping. Sort of oof, got there, got there in the end. Well done to Michael, Alex and Thomas. That, that was the highlight of the night. Um, anyway, a little flavour of the Polish night. But today we're going to look at the, the first three verses in Hebrews 12. And we're going to look at the question, how do we keep going in our Christian lives when there's so many obstacles to trip us up? Maybe you feel a bit like the boys in that ski challenge. It's almost like your feet are tied together and you keep falling over. But inspired by Thomas, Michael and Alex's example, we're going to see, I hope, how important it is to keep on persevering to the end of the race. So let's read today's passage from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, there's so much packed into those three verses. Let's, just, let's read them again before we, we continue. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So I want us to look at this passage in a kind of sermon of, of two halves. First, let's look at what's against us, the sin that so easily entangles and the opposition from the world around us. And the outcome of that analysis could be that we grow weary and we lose heart. But in the second half, we're going to look at all the things that are for us and, in fact, on who is for us. And the result of answering that question is that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And by the end of the sermon, I hope we'll be ready to soar with renewed strength and hope, like the eagles in Isaiah 40 that we see in the painting on the wall over there and that we sang about in one of our songs. So let's get going. Firstly, what is it that's going to slow us down in our race and trip us up? Well, the writer of the Hebrews is totally honest here in verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The bad news is there will be lots of things in life that will easily hinder us. The Greek meaning here is literally weigh us down. And so the writer tells us to throw off everything that gets in the way. In our video clip of the ski race, it would have been a lot easier if the boys could have just taken off those skis, chucked them out of the way. There were definitely a hindrance in getting to the finish line. 
Do you let things get in the way of your walk with God? Do you become easily entangled in sinful thoughts and actions? Does this warning, does it ring true to your life? I'm guessing it does, but these struggles don't need to define you. Here's the thing, the heroes of Hebrews chapter 11 that we looked at over the last two weeks, they're also full of people that became entangled with sin. Noah and his drunkenness, Jacob the deceiver, Rahab the prostitute, Samson with his terrible relationship choices, King David an adulterer and murderer. So while we are rightly amazed by these stories of faith, we all too easily idolize the people in the stories rather than the God who inspired the actions of faith. Can I ask you not to make the mistake of elevating other Christians into super spiritual beings, people who operate in a different spiritual plane to what I could ever attain to? Yes, it's good to respect other Christians, to imitate good examples, but don't imagine that they are not somehow struggling with the day-to-day struggles of sin, just like everyone else. Is there anything this morning that is hindering your Christian life? When you hear these words, sin that easily entangles, is there something that immediately comes to mind? Do you need to commit to ending a relationship? to deleting that app from your phone, or resolving to turn down invites from that group that tends to lead you to places that you don't want to go. Naming those things in your head internally is a good start, especially if God's bringing them to mind right now. But it's good to talk to a Christian friend, someone you can trust to help share those struggles out loud and ask them to pray for you as you strive to throw off that sin that has started to tangle you up. Another translation of verse 1 puts it as lay aside every weight. It's almost like the writer says we are trying to live our life while carrying a huge burden. If you have um, been one of these brave people that has ever run the Great North Run, um, or like me, um, watched it from a safe distance at the side of the road, Um, It's always impressive and slightly terrifying when you see people doing it in elaborate fancy dress costumes. But there is one local celeb, this guy here, uh, who took it to a different level. And that man is Tony the Fridge. Now, I'm not making this up by the way. Um, He has run the half marathon several times with a 42 kilogram fridge on his back. Now that is a crazy example of making life harder than it needs to be. I get that he does it to raise money for charity and he's he's raised loads of money, definitely has, but a fridge, I've tried to move a fridge two metres across my kitchen and it almost killed me. (laughs) So the idea of putting it on your back and running 30 miles is absolutely bonkers. But it seems that Tony actually agrees. Here's what he said in a BBC interview in 2014 ahead of running a marathon. I hate the fridge, he insisted. It starts off tough, then gets impossible. I don't put it on for show. I should never have run with the fridge because I was injured when I began. I went running with kettlebells in a rucksack and it swung everywhere, damaging my lower back. According to Tony, there's no other way to prepare for the physically grueling marathon than being being mentally strong. Wow. Listen, Tony, I've got one idea of how you can make it a bit easier. (laughs) 
still, I, I always enjoyed hearing my wife um, Lucy talking about training for the Great North Run in, in previous years by saying, as long as Tony the Fridge doesn't pass me, I'll be happy. <laughs> now, I'm not at liberty to say if that ever happened. <laughs> But yet, as Christians, we do sometimes attempt to live our lives carrying massive burdens around, don't we? Perhaps it's an unrepented sin or holding on to a grievance from the past, a past wrong done to us. Hebrews 12 says to us, stop making it harder. Throw it off. Repent of your sin and get out of the tangled mess that it brings. Paul the Apostle could write this in Romans chapter 7 about his own personal struggle against sin. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So Paul is saying, listen, I want to do good. I really do but I fail to do it. And I don't want to do bad things, but it just happens. Those people of faith in chapter 11, they struggled with sin. Paul the apostle struggled with sin. You will struggle with sin. I struggle with sin, but it is a struggle that is worth engaging in. So this morning, can I say, if you are feeling weary and losing heart in life, maybe God is saying to you, throw off those things that are hindering you and the sin that so easily entangles. The second thing that is against us is is hinted at in verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. It's an obvious fact that Jesus endured opposition while on earth. It was opposition that turned the crowd from chanting Hosanna one week to crucify the next. So as Christ's disciples, we must expect opposition. Jesus made it plain in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And we've thought quite a lot about persecution uh, in our studies in Hebrew all these last months. It was part of the daily waking experience of those early first century Christians. And as Andy pointed out a few weeks ago, it's been a fairly consistent theme for many Christians down through the centuries. So maybe I don't need to labor this point other than to say that there will be times when we can be as godly and friendly and truthful and helpful and Christ-like as we can, but the world will still not stand by and applaud. The gospel we share is good news, but it also brings division between those who receive it with gladness and those who reject it out of hand. And that reality might be very close to some of us here. But if the thought of, of persecution is something that fills you with fear and apprehension, maybe the perspective of Dutch Christian writer Corrie Ten Boom will help. With her family, she hid Jewish people from the Nazis. And Corrie amazingly survived the concentration camps, although her father and sister did not. In her memoir, Corrie recalled a conversation with her dad when she was a little girl. And she told him she was scared of dying. Her father's reply was so wise. When we're going to catch the train, when do I give you your ticket? 
Just before I got on the train, Corrie replied. Corrie's father explained to her that just as he gave her the train ticket at just the time she needed it, she could trust her heavenly father to give her the courage just when it was needed. And Corrie Tenboom found that to be true throughout her adult life. When she needed the courage to face the Gestapo, God sustained her. Before her death, her sister Betsy said to Corrie, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. The Bible is totally realistic about our human condition. The fact that we are prone to becoming mixed up in sin, the likelihood that choosing to live for Christ may not make you universally loved and popular, and the reality that we often feel afraid and tempted to give up. You know, when you open your Bible, you'll find it's not some religious whitewash you're going to get. It's not some pious summary where everything is easy and glorious. It's honest about the Christian life because it's inspired by the creator of life and the one who has lived the experience of walking in our shoes. So we should expect opposition in life because Jesus did. Okay, thanks Keith, you've really lifted my spirit so far. Well, we've let this passage diagnose some of the things that are against us in life, and it's important to do that. But let's turn our attention and ask, what or who is for us? Firstly, be inspired by those that have gone before. In verse 1 it said, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And we come to chapter 12 after the amazing catalogue of faith we've seen in chapter 11. Those named, but just as importantly, those not named. We thought last week about the kind of faith they had, but we also noted how ordinary and flawed so many of them were. But what does this unusual phrase, the cloud of witnesses, mean? Is it literally the Hebrews a living crowd? Are these past saints really watching down from above like in the picture on the left of the screen? For instance, is Noah bothered about what I do? When I got on the ferry at North Shields a few summers ago and said, oh, this is a big boat, is Noah looking down shaking his head? <laughs> Are the people in Hebrews 11 a bit like us sat watching Thomas, Michael and Alex in the skis, alternately cheering on or groaning as we stumble through life? No, it doesn't mean witnesses in the sense of spectators watching our present behavior. It's not like in the picture on the left. But instead, it means those who can testify or give witness to a life of faith. The word translated as witnesses really means testifiers. They bear testimony to the power of a life of faith, like a role of honor of those who have gone before. They aren't spectators, which comes really from the Greek idea of gods looking down and discussing the plight of humans. And we still see that kind of Greek idea of the gods looking down today, you might have heard people say things like, I'm sure my gran is watching down on me now from above. It might sound like a comforting idea, but it's not true. I do understand why people say this kind of thing. Or when you see sports stars on the rugby or football pitch pointing heavenwards in reference to a loved one or someone who has recently died. Stuart Hogg here has just recently retired. He was involved in a car accident and his best friend was killed. And every time he scored a try... He'd always point heavenwards in remembrance of him. But they're kind of acknowledging, even if they don't realize it fully, that there is a heavenly spiritual dimension 
that we can't see beyond us. I think it reveals that people don't really believe that when you're dead, that's it. You're in the ground and gone. You know, the Bible tells us there is something more to life after death, something beyond the clouds, and many people seem to acknowledge this when they're faced with the loss of a loved one. Maybe another kind of modern example would be of, of a cloud of witnesses. Could be like TripAdvisor. When you, when you see lots of people giving kind of great feedback in a, in a restaurant or a hotel, um, you kind of tend to trust the fact that other people have been there uh, and seen it and experienced it and say that it's good. They're kind of giving testimony to how good the service was. Or, or maybe when you're walking in the countryside and you're not certain of which way to go, but you see a well-worn path and you think, well, obviously lots of people have been here before. So this is probably the right way to go. There's a kind of testimony in a well-worn path that others have walked this way. But is the life of faith worth it? Well, these cloud of witnesses shows that it is. Like in a court case, they are testifying that something is true. And we should be inspired by examples of those who have gone before, including people that we have known in our own lives who ran a good race until the end. I've personally found it an absolute privilege to attend so many incredible funeral services in this church and in other churches, where the testimony of a life of faith well lived for Jesus shines out through every aspect of the church service. And Alison Fairbairn's Thanksgiving service on Thursday was very much like that. So take encouragement from the example of those who've gone before. It truly is an incredible cloud of witnesses. And one day we will see them and they will see us. Next, we see that we have a race marked out for us, but perseverance is the key. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Be encouraged, there's a race marked out just for you. Keep going, don't listen to those voices that say your life is unimportant, that your life is not significant, that it's a disappointment compared to others. God says that he is a race marked out just for you for you. He has placed you in this time and space, in the circumstances you're in, with the problems you have to overcome, with the things only you face, because he is working out his purposes in your life. Your life matters in God's hands. Your everyday, normal Christian life is far more significant than you can ever imagine. But as we thought in the first half of our sermon, this is not an obstacle-free race. This is no downhill, freewheeling, coast-into-the-finish-line event. We need to run with perseverance. This beach on the screen is, is near um, Banff in the north of Scotland. Uh, and you might be surprised to know this is where I had my greatest ever running moment. It was a race that had me go through a range of emotions, starting with irritation, then embarrassment, moving into anger, and then ending with a glorious finish. Now, this wasn't some local fun run I'd entered on holiday, while on holiday, or a park run, or anything like that. This was a race for me against a crisp packet. <laughs> now, you know when you're having a picnic and somebody you know, drops, a, drops a crisp packet and it kind of just blows a little bit away, so... Um, the wind did that, we were sat down on the beach and it just caught the packet and just blew it away. So I thought, well, I'll just trotted after it to get it because you don't want to litter the beach, you don't want to be that kind of person. Um, but the packet just blows a little bit further, so I kind of start to kind of just trot after it. And it's still moving, so I start to jog a little bit. 
but the packet's still spiraling away from me. And now I'm conscious that there's other people on the beach and they're watching this. So there's no way I am not catching this crisp packet. And now we're into the open part of the beach uh, and the wind's picking up uh, and the packet's really starting to travel quite fast. So now I'm into a full pace run, kind of escorting the packet along the beach, but never catching it crucially. Uh, it's still spinning just beyond occasionally, you know, chicaning around, just make me look even more foolish. Um, and I'm now about 200 yards from where I started, and I'm starting to feel really tired. Uh, my lungs are screaming at me, my heart is pounding, my legs are aching, and now I'm just annoyed about the whole ridiculousness of this situation. But I can't give up. Too much effort has been put in now. I am catching that crisp packet. However, I realise that I'm fading and the crisp packet is still being blown along at a steady pace, so it's do or die time. And with a final last effort, I pull out a full length dive with despairing outstretched hand, and with a sense of total surprise, I grasp the crisp packet as my face plants right into the wet sand. <laughs> and I lay there, panting like some kind of over-exercised dog. Quite a while later, as I, as I walk back up the beach to see my family, they are met with howls of laughter, obviously, <laughs> obviously. If you're feeling like the race of life is too hard, or it's too long, and things are just getting away from you, don't give up. Keep going to the end. Don't ease up before the finish line. When you watch an Olympic race and you see the athletes coming towards the end, they may be tiring, but as they get near to the finish line, they give it all they've got, like me and that stupid crisp packet. Australian evangelist John Chapman uh, had a rather blunt catchphrase when asked why he hadn't retired from evangelistic preaching in his 80s. If you're not dead, you're not done. Athletic imagery is quite common across the New Testament, and one of the most famous examples is in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. Don't be an aimless runner in your Christian life. That strict training the writer mentions here starts with a good daily routine. Jesus taught his disciples to ask for daily bread and daily forgiveness. Pick up your Bible and make reading it part of your regular life. The writer of Hebrews also talks about meeting with other Christians regularly. These are the daily and weekly habits that help you persevere in your Christian life. But the strength to endure ultimately comes from looking to Jesus. So the author turns from the lives of Old Testament heroes to the greatest example of them all. Verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Not looking around at other people's races, not thinking, well, that looks like a nicer race. Well, it must be easy for them. Not thinking, that person is so much better at this than me. No, only we can run our own race with perseverance. If we are running the race looking to Jesus, not being distracted by others. The Greek word used here for fixed, a is translated look or fix, 
and it suggests the action of someone who is aware of rival attractions but deliberately looks away from them. We are looking to Jesus, the one who knows our struggles. He endured the race set before him. He endured the cross and through his strength that he gives to us, we too can persevere and overcome. Some modern translations use the word pioneer or trailblazer instead of author. And I think that works well. Jesus made a way when there wasn't a way. He has gone before us. If you'll permit me just one hill climbing illustration. I do have a bit of a, a, bit of a sermon habit going, I'm afraid. Um, so, so most of the mountains in the UK, you can get to the top with your hands by your side. Um, but there are a few dozen where maybe you have to kind of clamber and get hands and feet involved. And then there's maybe a dozen where you actually have to get into kind of more like rock climbing. Um, and I'm much more into the kind of walking, clambering variety. So when I had to trip to climb the Coolin Mountains in Skye a few years ago, I was really nervous. This was the terrain of the rock climber. And one of the ridges that we were going to go along in this sky trip is described in the Scottish mountaineering guidebook uh, like this, a knife edge arete with horrifying drops on either side, <laughs> which is not the most encouraging description to read to as we're driving up in the car. But on this trip, my friend Colin, uh, who had done a lot of climbing with, he invited a retired mountain leader, Brian, who's in the picture. And Brian had climbed in the Coolins for many years, and he'd led ascents up some really hard climbs in the Alps. So this was territory that he knew well and had been across before. So when we got to this particularly nasty ridge section, Brian knew that I was scared. I think my pale face and lack of speaking kind of gave it away. So he turned to me and he said firmly these exact words, keep your eyes fixed on me, follow exactly the route I take, and don't look down. I've probably never followed someone's instructions more carefully in my life than at that moment. But as I clambered along this ridge, I felt surprisingly calm. Brian knew what he was doing. He was totally confident and sure-footed, and he passed that feeling on to me. The dangers and difficulties of the route, they hadn't disappeared, but I had my eyes fixed on someone who had gone to show me the way. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He knows the way. But in what way does our faith need perfecting? Hebrews 11 shows us that the people of God lived by faith in the past. But fundamentally, it was a faith that looked forward to Jesus coming and the promises and prophecies being fulfilled. Jesus was the author of faith from the beginning, but also the fulfillment of all those promises in God, stretching right back to the Garden of Eden. Jesus is therefore the perfecter or completer of faith. And we can see that our faith is perfected because Jesus has finished that work and sat down at the right hand of God. Is it significant that Jesus is sitting down? When we fail and falter, and we will, and let sin entangle us once again, we look to Jesus and what do we see? Well, we see that he sat down on the throne of God. It reminds us that the price has been paid, that our sins are forgiven, and he is no longer offering a sacrifice for our sins. It's been done once for all, and so he sat down. So fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of your faith, and he is the one who has begun a good work in you and will bring it to completion. 
At Alison Fairbairn's funeral this week, her nephew shared a conversation he'd had with Alison a few days before she died. He asked her if she had her eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm trying to, she said, but I know he's got his eyes on me. That is what fixing your eyes on Jesus looks like. Total confidence that Jesus loves you, has forgiven you, and is going to take you to be with him. Knowing that whatever you face, whatever it feels like, Jesus has got you in the center of his vision. Lastly, let's, let's think about Jesus, the one who scorned the shame and endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus' life of perseverance and endurance also showed the most amazing example of deferred joy. There would be a day when he would be sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But first, darkness was coming on that Good Friday. Physical darkness across the land, yes, but physical and spiritual darkness for Jesus too. He sweated drops of blood in that moment. Such was his anguish. But he knew the resurrection sunrise of Easter Sunday was ahead. Jesus, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, who knew no sin but became sin for us, did so for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, there is joy in the here and now of the Christian life, undoubtedly. There is joy in having a purpose on earth, a race marked out for us, as we've thought about already. But there's an amazing future joy ahead. Looking back to chapter 11, in verse 16, we read, the people of faith are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And in verse 26, Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. There's almost nothing in life of lasting value that is not attained through hard work or coming through a time of testing and difficulty. And sometimes we can see that we're going to have to get through this season in our life before better times are ahead. At the start of my, of my working life, um, back in 1998 to about 2001, I spent um, most of my time working down in Teesside. Um, so for about three or four years, I had the, the joy of driving from Newcastle along the Felling Bypass, down the A19, and along the many, many roundabouts of the A66 to get to work. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I was working on a site. It was a really interesting place to work, if not the most scenic. Um, but I did grow to absolutely hate the A19. Uh, I don't know, maybe you've got a route that's like that for you. You just turn it just too many times. It's just people try to kill me every day. It was just a terrible, terrible commute. Always took ages. You know, there'd be an accident. I'd be there for an hour. Just lots of bad things. So as the po project progressed into its second year, um, I started thinking, longing about that day in the future when I would finally drive past this trig point on the A19. It's called Hastings Hill trig point um, just next to A19 and one day I would drive past that for the last time and this awful commute would be behind me. So most days I'd pass this point in my journey and think one day, one day and then finally about 2001 we had our closeout meeting on site, the final act of the project and I drove north to Newcastle passing that trig point 
and I let out a shout of joy and punched the air and said a prayer of thanks while holding the wheel carefully. <laughs> I knew at that moment it was coming eventually uh, and the A19 commute was finally behind me. Now, I realize there are more trialing things in life than a commute up the A19 for work. Some people are really going through the mill and through hard times with the obstacles that life is putting in their way right now. If that is you this morning, can I tell you that Jesus knows what you're going through? He has been through extreme adversity too. He has walked a mile in your shoes. Philippians 2 is really helpful to be reminded of. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus counted on the future reality of joy when he faced up to the cross. He died as a common criminal. I don't think it's possible to think of any more lowly way for his life to end. But he endured that for you and me. For the joy that was set before him, the joy of not just being in the presence of the Father again, he already had that joy from the beginning, but for the joy of who could now be with him and the Father, those he now calls brothers and sisters. That's you and me. Our future is secure. Our home is in heaven and not here, even though we often forget. Despite what the latest news bulletin will tell you, there are joyful times ahead for all those whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. We thought at the start about the things that are against us, the sin that so easily entangles, those things that hinder us, the opposition we face from the world around us. But when we look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, when we resolve to persevere in the race marked out for us, just as those saints who have gone before did, and when we focus on the joy that lies ahead, well, if we do all those things, then Hebrews 12 verse 3 can be true for each one of us. You will not grow weary and lose heart. Isaiah the prophet spoke um, these words centuries before in chapter 40 of his prophecy. And with these words, I'll finish. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and its understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, as we saw. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen.